And uh, this morning we're leading off on kind of a, uh, a transition in the study, but we're kind of doing an overview of the worship of the church and, and specifically on the Lord's Day. Um, I've got uh, several more handouts. I think Harold's got some outside, but if anybody needs one, I've got like a half a dozen up here, so uh, just let me know. Uh, you will notice a lot of uh, scripture references. Uh, we may be, if we've got time, I think it is uh, vital for us to uh, uh, turn to a lot of these just to, to look at the basis for a lot of our discussion today. So I may be calling on folks, if uh, if you will, uh, to assist me on that. So um, kind of just leading off this morning, but, uh, you know, God created us, created man, and you know, if you really look at back at us, I mean, he's created us with an instinctive need to worship. Um, and you can see this in all facets of humanity, uh, whether or not we have religious, uh, you know, faith walks or not. I mean, even with folks that, that don't have a faith walk, if you really sit back and think about humanity, everybody worships something. You know, if, if you don't, uh, just looking at the world, I mean, we look at, uh, you know, how sports, how, you know, our our entertainers, um, when you get in the business world, you know, look at, at position, power, money, all of those things, if you're misguided, you will ultimately, humanity will ultimately worship something. Um, and again, that's part of our, our, you know, our nature. God created us in his image and you know he gave us that instinct to to worship to to seek out something. So let's turn uh, first of all let's turn to Acts chapter 17 that first uh, reference there. <clears throat> Acts chapter 17 verses 22 through 29. I should have brought my glasses. I'm Starting to get into that, that age transition, so it's, uh, it's getting really awkward right now. It says, And Paul stood in the middle of the Aragopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that you're extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the, the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to the unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and things and all things. From one man he has made every nation of men to live all over the earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live, so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him though he is not far from each one of us. For in, he, for in him we live and move and exist, even as, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Being God's offspring, then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. So there's... Again, Paul, you know, when he reached out to and, and tried to uh, uh, speak with the, uh, uh, you know, with the philosophers in Athens, just called out that point, you know, that ultimately we are made in God's image, but we are made and designed to seek him. Um, 
And just jumping right back down into, into uh, item B here under our first section, you know, without that, that proper instruction, you know, we need instruction on how appropriately to seek God. Um, you know, we talked briefly about, you know, totally misguided means of, of worshiping objects or things. But even when we're seeking God, you know, if we inappropriately um, seek the wrong image, you know, and that's very, very easy to do. And, the, you know, one of the first ones that comes to my mind is, is uh, Aaron building the golden calf, you know, when, when Moses was on Mount Sinai, obtaining, again, the first law that God was, was uh, establishing to the Jewish nation. Um, you know, they had seen God's power and presence on Mount Sinai and witnessed, you know, his presence. But then, you know, obviously he wasn't, Moses didn't come back down quick enough for him. And again, that just, to me, calls to mind, you know, how quickly we can, we can lose our focus, how we can, um, we can lose sight of really our objective, our goal, and the ultimate, that's to, to uh, please God. But, you know, again, the, the golden calf, uh, thinking about Manasseh as he, he rebuilt the, uh, the altars to the Baal gods uh, in 2 Kings 21. But then also, even somebody who's ignorant of, you know, God's full message that is honestly and earnestly seeking him, we look at Cornelius in Acts. Um, you know, when Peter first approached him in Acts chapter 10, uh, the first thing he did when he when he wished him, he he bowed down to him and worshipped him. You know, Peter had to rebuke him and say, "Look, I'm just I'm a man just like you. Don't don't bow down to me. You know, we need to worship and bow down to God." Um, the same thing again happened to Paul and Barnabas. You know, in Acts chapter 14, when they uh, uh, healed a man in Lystra. You know. It, that one, well, it's a lengthy reading, but uh, that whole that whole passage there, you know, that was was the impetus behind what happened. You know, they they healed a man, and all the people, you know, worshipped them as gods, and they had to spend a lot of time, you know, hey guys, we're just like you. There's even though they were inspired by the Holy Spirit and, and given those miraculous gifts, you know, people were still worshiping them. They were elevating the human above above God. So I think that's something we've always got to focus on is that, you know, we are given that innate nature that we're going to worship something. Uh, and it's then our our obligation to teach and, and show, you know, we got to direct all that energy, that instinct in the in the uh, correct location, the correct manner. And again, that's ultimately God. Any thoughts or comments on that before we will probably have to, to ramp up because uh, there's quite a bit here to cover. Um, you know, God's always provided man uh, with instruction regarding acceptable worship. And let's go ahead and turn back to uh, Genesis chapter 4. Again, when we look at the, uh, the patriarchal age, you know, it's not explicitly spelled out, but when we look at the, uh, the written record, it shows us, you know, there was instruction on how to, to worship God even in the beginning. And, of course, this is, you know, the first generation after Adam and Eve being expelled from the garden. Um, Jeremy, you care to read uh, um, Genesis 4 there for me? It's uh, verses 3 through 5. So there we see a contrast. You know, again, the very first example of a worship, um, you know, we're not given any of the details other than, you know, Abel was a shepherd, tended flock, 
you know, Cain was basically a farmer. Um, two different sacrifices, you know, and at, at face value, you're like, well, is that just, you know, was that because of the uh, uh, the fact that one of them offered a sheep and the other one offered a grain offering or some produce? But I think if we turn over to Hebrews 11, uh, verse 4, that tells us a little bit more, gives us a little bit more insight in the in the situation there. This says, Hebrews 11, 4, says, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By this, he was approved as a righteous man, because God approved his gifts. Even though he is dead, he still speaks through this. So I think there it's diving and drilling more into the heart. Um, you know, ultimately we could look at, you know, study a bit more about Cain and Abel, but I think, uh, again, having that that acceptable worship and without really explicitly talking about it, I mean, God's already inferring that, you know, our state of mind, our heart is critical to us offering acceptable worship. Uh, you know, and God continues more explicit instructions as, as we advance through the Bible. You know, when we look at the Mosaic age and then the Christian age that we're in currently, you know, in Exodus, Leviticus, that's very detailed uh, description instructions for how the nation of Israel, you know, was to to worship, um, and then again, we get into the New Testament, then that gives us specific instruction on how to to worship and uh, you know it, make our offerings pleasing, and acceptable to God. Um, we'll get down into this a little bit more, but you know, we've looked at this a few weeks ago when we looked at the old and the new covenants. Um, you know, again, the old law was very specific, law ordinance based. You know, you follow this recipe X Y Z. Um, the difference between that and the Christian age, you know, if you look at it, we have a lot more freedom, don't we? You know, God doesn't tell us that we've got all these laws and ordinances to adhere to. Again, kind of jumping back into. Jesus says he's uh, starting his ministry. You know, that was one of the, to me, one of the key elements of, you know, when he started preaching and, and uh, telling the world about, the new, you know, what his kingdom was going to be like. He didn't dwell on the specifics of those details and commandments. You know, he drilled down into, you know, are you, what's your heart condition like? And, you know, I think that's one of the, the key elements here is, um, you know, God has continued to advance and, and give us more detail. Um, but then also, in my mind, I mean, he's He's lifting a lot of pressure off of us because, I mean, if I go back and look at the old law, and, I mean, I don't even know if I could get through a day, personally, uh, to meet all those. And, again, you know, you could do your best, but, you know, if you had, a, if you had failed in one aspect because of ignorance, you know, you're still a lawbreaker. Um, to me, that's a exactly, and still remembering, that, you know, the thing that always I have to keep in mind all the time is, you know, I constantly, you know, I'm always I get my again I probably overthink things uh, with my technical uh, work. I, I have a tendency to do that, so that paralysis by analysis type thing, uh, but. Uh, you know, constantly thinking about, you know, the things that trip me up, you know, 
things that I've struggled with since I was a little kid, and I, you know, can't get over that, whether it's, you know, different temptations or attitudes, you know, being prideful, uh, not being gracious to those I'm around, not being patient to those I'm around, um, and, you know, I, you, it's easy to get discouraged, but then you sit back and you think about, wait a minute, you know, Jesus has already covered all those sins. He's already paid the price that uh, you know the the price of my sins, and I don't have to be. At, you know, again, we're not going to be perfect at it, but if we're constantly walking in the light, it was you know John mentions in First John, you know, we don't have to be oppressed by that constantly. Uh, so again, that's something that I think we have to keep in mind all the time is that you know we're going to do the best we can, but guess what? We're all going to fail. Uh, it's kind of like the old analogy, you know, the, the two cows that try to jump over the moon, one of them jumped a foot off the ground, the other one jumped two feet. Well, guess what? They both failed miserably, you know, even though the one doubled the, the output of the other. Um, you know, that's how we are. You know, when we look at people that are, um, you know, we feel are, you know, extremely strong in their Christian walk, well, guess what? They're still failures. So, um, again, that's the whole purpose, I think, of, you know, Jesus' blood is, you know, we don't have to be bogged down in, in thinking about that. We're constantly focused on following his example, you know, and trying to be salt and light to those we're around. So um, I know I kind of got off a little bit here, but uh, um, I think that's something for us to always, again, keep in mind. Uh, one thing also we got to get kind of getting back on topic here, we have to understand that we you know, there's a prescribed method of, of worship. So we've got to understand what that prescription is, uh, you know, so that we can be acceptable to God. And God does warn us, you know, about what, uh, uh, you know, there are unacceptable means of worship. You know, one of the, the first ones, again, that comes to mind is idol worship. Um, you know, when we looked at, uh, when he was even, and I think he really stressed this, going back to Exodus chapter 20, uh, when he was establishing the the uh, Mosaic law, uh, Exodus 20, um, verses 3 through 5, says, Do not have any other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So, again, I think he's, you know, highlighted that it's the object of our worship is, is God Almighty, you know, and, again, we can't, we can't misdirect our objects of worship. It has to be him only. Um, you know, it's a very similar message, uh, you know, that, that Paul presented in, in Corinthians, again, talking about idol worship. Um, but, you know, there's, ever, there's several different things that can... And take the place, you know, idols, objects. Um, Colossians 3 mentions, you know, money being a uh, uh, an object that people will tend to worship. And again, we talked about this uh, at the beginning, but, you know, in Philippians 2 uh, even mentions self, you know, being an object of worship. So again, we have to remember, you know, God the Father is, is uh, our object of worship in all things. And also... Um, looking at ignorant worship, you know, when we're, we're doing the best we can, um, but still 
you know, we we can be misguided and ignorant. Again, that's an uh, an unacceptable form of worship. Let's turn over to uh, Acts chapter 17 real fast. He mentions this in verse 30. He says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. So again, that was, again, Paul's... uh, Interaction with with the philosophers in Athens, uh, but you know that he is telling us, you know that they're, you know, again being ignorant of um, of God's will, you know, still can result in us being unacceptable or unacceptable in our worship. Uh, we talked about vain worship being unacceptable, uh, Matthew chapter 15, uh, 8 and 9. Then also will worship. Uh, Let's look at that one because you all may not fully understand what I'm talking about when I say will worship. But Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2.23. It says, Although these have a reputation of wisdom by promoting ascetic practices, humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value against fleshly indulgence. And that's you know, one of those practices where you would impose upon yourself ascetic practices. I think that, uh, my memory, my history, I think that was something that uh, came into play a lot during the uh, Catholicism back in the, um, was it the 12th or 13th century, but where you would, um, you know, walk around and, and basically trying to almost torture yourself. I know there was a, I forgot what the device was called, but where you would, uh, clamp something of, around of its, uh, maybe a chain or whatnot that had spikes in it uh, that people would clamp around their, their leg, you know, and it would be hidden under the clothing, but they were constantly, you know, when they felt like they had, had fallen short of God's will, they would ratchet it a little bit tighter and it would cut into their, their legs, you know, imposing a lot of pain on them themselves. Um, you know, I think that's where he gets, he's talking about these ascetic practices, but that, to me, that will worship, you know, where, again, you're trying to, uh, you're trying to overcome your failures with these works, even though maybe somebody didn't even know what that, didn't, wasn't aware of it, but I think that's a, a danger here of, of a, an unacceptable worship where we're imposing upon ourselves something more harsh, more, you know, specific than God ever did. And again, that goes back to, um, you know the tendency of the of the Pharisees. You know when you look at that again, impose much more uh, requirements and, and laws and whatnot than even God did during the establishment of the of the uh, the old law. So those are again more uh, more examples of unacceptable worship. Now jumping down to uh, section four, you know he has clearly defined what true and acceptable worship is for Christians. Um, of course, the Greek word, I'm not going to pronounce it, Josh. I, I'm not going to do it. You, you've made me get all the ones that have the Greek enunciation. So uh, there it is. I, I tried to spell it out. But uh, basically, the Greek word for worship means to kiss or to kiss towards. So that means, you know, a, paying an act of homage or, or you know, extreme reverence towards something. Um, that's the you know, the true definition of, or the literal definition of worship. Uh, you know, worship is a definite 
intentional act. You know, when you look at the uh, the wise men from the came from the east in Matthew chapter two, you know, when they were coming to see, but you know, the the infant Christ, uh, you know, that was an intentional act for them. They had, you know, again, the Holy Spirit had provided them that message, um, you know, and they had spent quite some time traveling, you know, again, to come and, and to worship him. And then what did they do? You know, they offered, um, you know, the, the spices of frankincense and myrrh, you know, so they were offering him worship even as a, as a baby, but that was an intentional act. Um, it also requires complete and full participation uh, and focus, you know, to be acceptable. Um, and I think the the one that really highlights that to me, uh, going back to you know Abraham's sacrifice to God in you know in that, uh, Genesis 22, you know of course this is him going up on the mountain with Isaac, you know God testing him, uh, you know being an old man, promised that you know he would have seed from his his own body that would you know produce a great nation, and ultimately that Messiah would come through. So here's the child Isaac, and God tells him to go sacrifice him. You know, that had to be uh, very intentional, and uh, he had to be completely committed to that. But then also, you know, we get more revelation in uh, in Hebrews where, you know, his faith was so strong that he understood that even if God asked him to kill Isaac and he carried it out, you know, God had promised through this child. I'll build a great nation. Uh, so he knew that, um, you know, God would ultimately would would uh, resurrect him from the dead. So again, I think that shows us that you know we have to um, we have to be committed. We have to be intentional uh, when we when we come to worship. Uh, you know, God did define elements for true and acceptable worship. Um, let's turn over to John chapter four. Look at Jesus' description of. Of that. I've been talking a lot. Has anybody got comments, questions, anything so far? John 4, verse uh, 23 and 24. It says, But an hour is coming, and now is here, when the true worshipers, worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So then let's look at what that really means. Um, true worship, again, that must be directed towards the proper object, the proper direction. Again, that's God. Um, you know, Matthew chapter 4 tells us, you know, worship the Lord your God and serve only Him. And again, that involves this act, this uh, um, air of reverence and awe, you know, when we come and, and approach God. You know, we can't <clears throat> Excuse me. That's something I think we, you know, I get caught up in, you know, day-to-day life, and you know, we're trying to meet schedules and rushing around. You know, child's not getting ready on time or something. We're trying to get here before we're late. Um, you know, this morning I was trying to finish up the outline and get it printed and make sure we got here before. Uh, I didn't want to be the last one in the in the classroom, so you know, there's a. Uh, some aspects there where we kind of worry about the day-to-day earthly things and not necessarily maybe have the attitude of what are we coming to do? 
You know, we're coming to to give worship and, and a sacrifice to our Creator and to our Savior. Um, you know, that's a that's a pretty powerful thing to be when you step back and think about. It. You know, every Sunday, um, every Sunday night, Wednesday night, you know, we fall into that routine. But when you step back and distill it down, I mean. When we're coming into the presence of God Almighty, that's that's pretty pretty intense stuff. Chuck, sorry. <coughs> oh, it's just focus. That's right. That's right. True worship also has to come from that proper attitude, you know, in spirit. Um, you know, that has to again <clears throat> back to back to your comment. You know, our that has to be directed again from internally, from our heart, from our soul, with faith. Um, you know, as John 14 mentions, and then from the heart, where's our worship going? Where's, who's it directed to? Toward directed towards God, right? So it's towards that specific, that proper object, which again is God, the God, the Creator. And then also, you know, it's directed with a heart of joy and thanksgiving. Again. You know, thinking about that, uh, you know, the whole reason that we have joy in in this life is knowing that Jesus already paid the price that that I deserve to pay. You know, and that's uh, with everything else that's going on. You know, as he mentioned, uh, you know, take heart. You know, in this world you will have troubles, but I've overcome the world. So, as crazy as anything situation we have in this earthly life. Ultimately and finally, if we're following Him, if we, you know, if we, if if we have accepted Him, put Him on in baptism, and are are trying to walk in the light, nothing else really matters, right? And you know, just like uh, I think it was that last week that, uh, or week before last, when Hiram mentioned that, you know, if you have the most awful and and worst life in this on this earthly realm, ultimately. You know, in eternity, that's going to feel like nothing. You know, we don't think about that. Um, you know, we we get caught up in the day-to-day details of, of everything we're going through, but then when you step back and really think about it, it's like, well, it's really a blip in the radar screen, to be honest. So, you know, I think that's something we have to continue to think about. Um, and again, it's not only an outward act, but it's got to be an act internally. Um, and again, that's that's referenced in Matthew 15. Um, but then also, true worship must be directed again by that proper standard. And you know, as we started this this whole uh, uh, group of lessons, this the study, you know, that was one of the things we established initially was that we have to have a standard uh, by which you know that we we look at what where we we get truth, where we get authority, um, and then all things you know that. We do in worship again is done under Christ's authority, uh, and that's referenced in Colossians 3. And finally, also, you know, the worship to God must be in spirit and truth. That is a must. You know, we had to have the direct, the correct attitude, um, and then we also have to do the correct things. So again, those, those two uh, two elements in, in John chapter chapter four. Now just jumping into the, you know, where the rubber meets the road here, uh, you know, God's authorized five avenues or five methods, five means of worship 
in the New Testament church. So we're going to start looking at that. So if you want to turn to, uh, well, we won't read that one, but Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 42, and then also 47, you know, they, we referenced that one of the avenues is preaching or, again, the, the apostles' doctrine uh, and giving or also in fellowship, the observance of the Lord's Supper, you know, which uh, in a lot of the texts is mentioned by breaking your bread, and then also in praying, and finally in singing, you know, where we're praising God. So let's first look at, at uh, preaching. Uh, so we'll turn over to Acts chapter 20, and you'll notice uh, there's going to be a lot of common common verses throughout this, and again, I'd We'll try to read through as many of them as possible, but uh, I haven't managed time appropriately this morning already, so we'll have to step it up a bit. Uh, Acts 20, verse 7 says, On the first day of the week we assembled to break bread, and then Paul spoke to them since he was about to part the next day, and he extended his message until midnight. And, of course, we remember the rest of that story where a uh, young man falls out of the out of the upper room um, Paul raises him back up, but again, his purpose there, uh, two things there, really, you know, breaking of bread, observing the Lord's Supper, but then also he was preaching. He was uh, bringing a message to them. That's one of the things, you know, further into the end of that chapter in verse 27, um, you know, that's that's one of the key elements, you know, that preachers are to are to uh, disclose or declare declare uh, the plan of God. It says, I did not uh, shrink back from declaring to you the whole plan of God. Um, and then also speaking only of the oracles of God in, in uh, 1 Peter 4. And then in uh, 2 Timothy mentions this a lot, you know, correctly handling the word of God, being able to understand it and uh, correctly apply it. Um, so that's one of, the, uh, one of the key elements of our preaching. You know, again, we are to, we're to engage in study and worship, uh, speak only of you know God's message, God's plan to us. But again, then also knowing enough about the Bible and have studied it enough so that when you read something, you can correctly apply it. Um, and I, you know, I've seen uh, seen a lot of misapplications and and misunderstandings um, do a lot of damage to folks. Um, so I think you know again that's that's one of our if you're called to preach, you know, that's one of your your key responsibilities is that, um, you know, it's kind of, again, I think about it, one of the key responsibilities of my, my secular job. You know, I've got I've to understand what I'm, what I'm doing. You know, a lot of scientific, uh, physical concepts. You know, if, if I was a, a low D student, probably not going to be able to correctly apply those those concepts um, and I think again if you know if you're uh, embarking on that call to preach you're taking on a pretty weighty responsibility and I think you know it's on you to get into the word and study enough to make sure that you know you can correctly understand and apply it as you're presenting the message to folks um, then also you know worshipers must desire that word uh, you know, First Peter's talking about, you know, we need to desire the word just like a, a baby desires milk. Uh, we've got a, a little one in here, and they let you know when it's time to eat. And that's how we should be when we're, you know, when we're in our study, is that 
we need to be craving God's message. Um, you know, we need to constantly be getting in the Word uh, and making sure that we're growing. You know, again, as, as that, that small child here is going to be growing and maturing, we have to be growing and maturing in our walk. We have to demand the truth. Um, you know, again, that and in, in our preaching, you know, we can't provide half truths. You know, this is not uh, this is pretty serious stuff here. So we can't uh, we can't demand anything but the entire truth in our preaching. And then, you know, as worshipers, we have to be willing to receive that message. And then we're also commanded to follow back up. And, you know, so a preacher presents it to you, well, you know, you don't get to just turn off your lights and say, well, that's what the preacher said. No, if you're like the Bereans, you know, and that's what we're called to do in Acts 17, we have to go back and search ourselves and make sure that, you know, what we're presented is, is, uh, is the correct message. So, again, that's, that's one of the... the Responsibilities of the of the hearer is that you know we it, our responsibility is to make sure the the message being preached is uh, correlates to what God's true message is. The second one, giving of our means, um, you know that's the physical, um, you know monetary giving, but then also giving of our time, uh, giving of our abilities, uh, you know being encouragers to those that are we're around, you know when folks are falling on hard times, sicknesses and whatnot, you know, they get discouraged very quickly. And, you know, you may not necessarily have the ability to provide monetary support, but I bet you can provide emotional support, cheer somebody up. We got some really good cooks in here. You know, just having a a nice home-cooked meal at times, think about that, you know, how that changes your outlook on life. If, If you've got, you know, one of your favorite meals provided to you, you know, that's an encouragement to those that, that we come in contact with. And, you know, it does, when we got back into the, again, the, one of the contrasts between the Old and the New uh, Covenants, you know, there was a prescribed amount of giving in the Old Law. And again, we're kind of freed from that directive, that, that prescribed burden. He says, give as you've been prospered. You know, some p- folks, you know, are, are struggling you know, they give as much as they can. Other folks that are blessed, you know, you, you've got the ability to give more than that that original prescribed amount. So, uh, what, and again, whether this is, whether we're talking about the, you know, getting out your pocketbook or, or your time, depending upon what your walk in life is, you know, we give as we're prospered in, in any aspect. And then also, you know, we're required to do that cheerfully, you know, if you're going to give something, be happy about doing it. Don't just, oh my goodness, I got to give this much, or I've got to take off and spend this much time over here on this activity. If you know, in God's eyes, if you if you got that mentality, then He would rather you just not do it. You know, if you're going to have that, you know, well, I'm I'm obligated to do this. No, if you're going to do something, be happy about it, so that you're committed and you know you're wanting uh, to give in that way. Um, observance of the Lord's Supper again that's a, a key element here and I, I think having this in the, the center of these aspects to me um, is not by 
chance either. Um, you know, when we think about the absor- observance of the Lord's Supper, again, it's a simple act. You know, we're only taking of, of two elements. We're taking of unleavened bread, and then we're taking the fruit of the vine, um, you know, that represent Christ's body and his blood. You know, of course, he, he implemented this, you know, in uh, this reference, Mark 14. Um, but just thinking about, you know, that we do this every week. Um, and to me, that has to be a central part of, you know, of our worship. Um, again, the thought that without his blood, I've got no hope of having a relationship with God. So um, to me, observing and remembering and thanking him for that sacrifice to me has to be a, a key element of our worship each week. Um, you know, we are doing that as a, as a memorial to Christ, you know, remembering that sacrifice that you know, he paid the price again for our sins. And then also, you know, we're proclaiming as, as 1 Corinthians, you'll notice all these references from 1 Corinthians, proclaiming his death. But then also, you know, we got a chance to examine ourselves. You know, there, Paul mentioned, you know, partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner in, in 1 Corinthians 11. You know, so we have, that's kind of a gut check each time. You know, we have to think about, are we doing what, are we approaching God in the correct manner? And then also, again, it's to be observed every Sunday. Going back to uh, uh, Acts 20, you know, on the first day of the week. And then if you'll look, I'm not going to read it because we don't have time, but 1 Corinthians 16, again, mentions on the first day of the week, on the first day of every week. So, you know, that's to be a, a key element of our, our worship on Sunday. Uh, moving forward, so praying and then also congregational singing, which I'm not going to get a chance to, to dive into very much on that. But, uh, again, those are, are key elements to to our, our worship, and uh, we'll have a, a uh, we're going actually going to have individual lessons on, on many parts of, of, the, of these uh, avenues. You know, God, again, did uh, authorize the church to worship on the first day of the week, on Sunday, and um, Revelations 1, 10, you know, describes that as you know, the Lord's Day. And, it's, you know, it says under the new covenant, the Lord established that, that new religion, that new institution, enacted new commandments, uh, provided a new feast and a new day of worship. And some of the things, you know, so the significance of the first day, if you remember what happened on Sunday, you know, from like Mark 16, 9, Jesus rose from the dead. He came out of the tomb. Um, he was declared to be the Son of God with power, Romans 1, 3 through uh, 4. God ga- or Jesus gathered his disciples together after his resurrection. And then the Holy Spirit came to the apostles on the first day of the week. And if you remember, that was described as the day of Pentecost. And that's one of the uh, other means we can come back to, to to verify that specific day. Because if you go back to... Leviticus 23, you can get a description of the, you know, the day of Pentecost was always on the first day of the week. Uh, first gospel sermon was preached on the first day of the week, and the kingdom was established on the first day of the week. And then finally, you know, we see that pattern of the first century church again, uh, 
coming together and, and worshiping, assembling on the first day. Um, again, it's significant to us because it is to Jesus, it is to God. You know, the, the, you know, the Lord does require the firsts from us. Um, you know, looking back at, at uh, some of those references, I'll let you all look, look that over after the class is over. Um, the Lord chose the first day of the week for himself and for his people. Um, so that means that we individually must make worship a priority on the Lord's day. Um, jump over this real fast, but you know, you see some uh, religious organizations that, that tend to still use the Sabbath or Saturday as a, a worship assembly time, but you know, the teaching on the Sabbath is, you know, it's pretty clear in the Bible, you know, um, it's not really referenced until the Mosaic Law was established. You know, there's reference to, in, in Genesis, you know, God rested on the seventh day. Um, that's, again, on Saturday. But his work and his and he are referenced in that passage three times, but man isn't. Um, so we don't really see the, the Sabbath actually being established again until... You know, he came to the, the Jewish nation on Mount Sinai and established that as the day by which he wanted to uh, wanted them to come and, and uh, focus on him. One of the other big things with the Sabbath, again, the establishment of the Old Covenant was only with who? The nation of Israel, all right? They, it was specific to them. And again, uh you know, God established that at Mount Sinai when, when uh, he descended and, and presented the law to, uh, to Moses. Again, it was a sign with Israel only. And one of the reasons being for, for that, again, is to let them remember, you know, they had been slaves in Egypt and he had delivered them out of, out of bondage. Um, so, again, we have to remember that was... Uh, specific to them and then you know to me one of the the primary elements we go back to that uh, transition between the old and the new covenant again was when did that occur at, G- at Jesus death right and uh, you know we see that when he died it, it you know in Matthew Mark and Luke all three describe that you know the curtain in the sanctuary was torn in two completely from top to bottom upon Jesus' death. So again, I think to me that's a one of the key elements that show us, you know, there was a defined transition between that old and new covenant. So um, kind of look through the, the conclusion there, but uh, you know, again, we have that object of worship, again, is, is God. You know, we are to uh, Make sure we understand all the requirements that are involved in our worship, and we're supposed to have that correct attitude, you know, in spirit to uh, uh, conduct ourselves and be acceptable to Jesus. So, uh, next week I think is the Lord's Supper. Is that right, Josh? Yeah. So next week we'll be talking specifically about the Lord's Supper. So, thanks for everyone's attendance. <laughs>